0: Post-modern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out, an alternative way to live is to live it's by... It's almost heaven. like raising a white flag and saying, ah, oh, it's all the secular people's fault and so no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic... How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church Podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church Podcast where we are going to be exploring today part two of understanding the secular mind it's been a couple of weeks since i published part one of this conversation because i had some really cool uh things i wanted to share there was the uh, interview with um with the ghetto preacher Willie ramos which was absolutely amazing um sitting down with this guy he's an absolute legend and just uh, talking and exploring you know what it means to 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 nurture a kind of lifestyle and church culture that really connects with people who don't like church. So that was a lot of fun, um, and so but anyways, look, I'm back, I'm back, and I'm ready to do the very next episode of uh, understanding the secular mind. Now, I, w- I want to refresh a little bit. Uh, why why am I doing this episode, right? Why am I um aiming to explore the theme of understanding the secular mind and the bottom reason or the bottom line rather is that a lot of times when we do outreach in our churches or when we engage in personal outreach uh, at least within adventism i don't know if this is true in every christian tradition but at least within adventism whenever we reach out i've noticed a tendency my whole life that we do it with a certain set of unspoken assumptions And those unspoken assumptions basically um, engineer in our minds the kind of person we're reaching out to. There's a profile that we create in our minds of the kind of people that we're reaching out to. And, And so what we end up doing is we end up reaching out in a particular way that only attracts the particular person who fits our profile. And, and we end up missing the people who don't fit the profile. And the tragedy for that is that the profile that we tend to create in our minds of the kind of people we're reaching out to, that type of person, that type of profile uh, exists less and less. And so in an emerging secular post-church world, the profile that we've manufactured in our minds of the kind of people we're reaching out to is increasingly rare. And and basically, what we end up doing then in our outreach efforts is we end up reaching out and connecting with an increasingly um, <laughs> what's the best way to put this with a demographic that is going extinct, and and then the demographics that are emerging and 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 growing and blowing up, we're missing them, and so we'll do all this work and we'll reach like one person, and you know praise God for that, but then. There's like these hundreds of people that we could have reached that we didn't because our model was so outmoded or 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 designed for a demographic that hardly exists anymore. And so part of the conversation on how we correct this is we have to understand who it is we're talking about, right? We have to understand what is the secular mind, you know, like how do people think today? How do people interact with reality today? What are people's questions? today and I'm speaking mostly within the framework of emerging Western you know sort of secularized millennials that generations um, and so I want to make make that very clear that not every single person on the planet or let's focus on the West which is what I'm really speaking into not every single person in the West is a like a postmodern millennial all right there's lots of people who classify on their different different um, modes of thought um, but the this sort of post to metamodern millennial mind um and zed mind is increasingly uh the new species uh that is taking over right it's the new culture that is emerging and it's it's the bit that we're missing and so that's what i want to do i want to explore in this series you know like how do they think right like how do they categorize reality how do they interact with the world around them so that we can then contextualize our approach to mission our frameworks of truth and and our overall vibe you know missional vibe we can contextualize it to speak meaningfully to their experience um, and so, yeah, look, that's essentially the bottom line of what I'm, what I'm trying to accomplish here. And, you know, some of you may be thinking, well, hey, that's a, that's a really noble aim, but what makes you an expert on what secular people think? <laughs> um, and the bottom line is this, I'm not an expert. Uh, I- I'm not a guru at all. And so what I'm going to be sharing in these episodes is really just from my own personal experience and i don't pretend that everything i say is transferable to every setting out there and th- there's a very simple reason for that because the postmodern the, one of the uh, you know sort of um, legacies of postmodernity that it has embedded imprinted into the cultural consciousness is is the fragmentation of culture and so what this means is that connecting with a post church um, post certainty culture in my neck of the woods is gonna be different to connecting with secular people in Manhattan. And that's gonna be different to connecting with secular people in Oregon. It's so different that it's kind of impossible for me to make a formula, right? And say, this is how you reach secular people and this is how they think. And you know, um, there's no way, you can't put people in a box like that. It's the bottom line. Uh, But what I am, aiming to do is explore some of the golden threads that are common right the golden threads that kind of string secular thought together into you know some patterns and 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 thoughts and ideas and concepts and value structures that are pretty generally you know um to be expected so to speak uh, and look at kind of like look at its underlying themes that transcend or, or that repeat rather uh, that the types of things that you can find quite often, no matter where you are in the world, because even though secular culture is very fragmented and people are very diverse, there are some common themes that you can sort of pick up on. And I want to explore those themes to kind of give us a foundation and help us to at least appreciate. At least appreciate the vast difference between the assumptions we make about the people we're reaching and the people that are actually increasingly inhabiting our communities and so i want to begin with this very simple concept and i'm gonna i'm gonna frame it this way i'm gonna label it this way um the concept is labeled the absurdity of life all right so i want you to remember that the absurdity of life and i want to explore that but first i I want to i want to wrestle with this question for for a few moments um when it comes to reaching a secular mind the vast majority of us myself included the vast majority of us we do not know nor have we ever known what it is like to inhabit that mind Okay? And so this creates a, a big challenge. Now maybe some of you sitting here grew up in you know deeply postmodern secular um, culture. and for you it would be different because you would be familiar with that state of mind. But most of us are either modernists who were converted through rational argumentation. Uh, which is completely different from you know, a modernist secular is completely different from a postmodern secular. Um, or we were raised religious, right? We were raised in a pre modern sort of environment. And so what this means is that there's a massive, gargantuan gap between our experience and the experience of the typical sort of pop postmodernist in the culture, because their way of being, right, their way of interacting with reality, their consciousness of reality is so distinct from ours. It's like night and day. And And so this is the question that I've often had to wrestle with is like, hey, wait, look, like, I do not know, nor have I ever known what it's like to inhabit this consciousness of secularism, right? Uh, of postmodern secularism to be more precise. I was brought up in an Abvids home. I was taught to trust God from my birth. and and basically what this means is that for my entire existence, I've always had an enthusiastic lens through which I perceive my being and its place in reality and I simply do not know what it's like to exist without that foundation. And so I can learn about secular philosophy, I can learn about how they think, but unless I aim to inhabit it, to appreciate it, <clears throat> to 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 really taste it, I can never really get it, right? And even then I can never really get it because I've, you know, I've never existed within that mode of being as my reality. Uh, And so that is really important because when you recognize that, you recognize that there's a huge chasm that separates your experience as a human being and that of the the postmodern secular mind. And so for a person of faith like myself my entire life has been basically filtered to this enthusiastic lens of redemption the second coming the gospel forgiveness all of these beautiful things all of these enthusiastic promises that then allow me to construct and engineer a way of life that is built on that enthusiasm but within postmodernity and secular culture that enthusiasm doesn't exist all right, That enthusiasm doesn't exist. And so what does it look like, right? What does it look like to wake up on Monday morning and to go to bed on Thursday evening and to face catastrophe on Sunday afternoon without that enthusiastic lens to guide you? What does that look like? How does it feel? i have no clue right and so i gotta admit that from the get-go and and you've got to admit that from the get-go we simply don't know what it's like to exist in that state of immersion and so now that doesn't that's just the starting place right like we're gonna build on that a little bit but this is the bit that i have found so many people who self-identify as christians or as adventists this is the bit that we miss we never aim to go this deep we just, we're looking for formulas and we're looking for gimmicks and we're looking for, 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 for you know, what's the next thing that's going to bring people through the doors. And so long as we keep doing that, and so long as we keep focusing on, you know, the next project or the next ministry or the next outreach or the next, you know, cool thing in, in town, um, we're never fully going to understand the people around us. And, and I believe that if you want to reach someone authentically, you have to inhabit their space and the reason why i believe that is because that's what jesus did right like jesus you know he came into this world he inhabited our time he inhabited our space he inhabited our flesh right he incarnated himself into a tangible somatic racialized male body and he interacted with the world around him and the structures and systemic injustices around him from within this tangible fleshly carcass, right? Like he was, he embodied this thing and, and he navigated this experience this way. And, and like why, you know, and there's so many reasons that we can give for why Jesus would have incarnated as a human being, many deep theological reasons, but I think there's also really beautiful social reasons and relational romantic reasons. And one of them is that you can't really, really understand someone unless you embody them. And in the same way, this is what makes us as human beings. This is why we can relate to Jesus so well. Right. This is why Paul says, hey, look, you can come boldly through the throne of grace because, you know, who do we have as our great high priest? We have Jesus and he was one of us. Right. He he embodied this existence. And so when it comes to reaching secular people, I believe that the incarnation offers us a true model of connecting with people. And that model, there is there's an essence of habitation in that there's an essence of immersion in that. And, and so this brings us back to the question then, you know, like, what does it look like to, to live within a worldview in which there is chaos, right? Chaos is the state that you inhabit, right? Comfort is elusive, comfort is fleeting, um, and, and, and that's essentially the reality that you that you dance with on a regular basis. Um, and so maybe the easiest way to to begin to unpack that is to go back a little bit and for those of you who are familiar with this conversation this might feel a bit redundant but I have to assume there's someone listening who's probably never contended with these issues before so let's go back just a little bit to the pre-modern era we'll work our way forward to the modern era and then we'll step into post-modernity and and meta-modernity which is where things appear to be heading now but the pre-modern era was the era in which people generally accepted and assumed two things number one absolute truth exists and number two it is to be found in the church now i'm speaking of the west here depending on where you were in the world it would be found somewhere else right but absolute truth exists it is to be found in the church And so if you were a priest or a pastor or a rabbi or, or, you know, a a, a revered religious icon within your community, um, people really looked up to you as a as a as a containment of truth. Right. It it was it was in you and you you had the answers and your religious text had the answers. And so you could open the Bible and everything was there and all you had to do was trust it. And, and, and there was this sort of idea that as we navigate reality by, through submission to this absolute truth found in Scripture, that we will eventually manifest a beautiful world, right? Um, well, it didn't really happen. Um, what we manifested was tyranny and coercion and injustice. And, uh, you know, anyone who's read the book of Daniel before, you'd be familiar with the whole concept of the little horn, the other horn, and the injustices that it perpetuated in the name of God. And, you know, you have the Crusades and the Inquisitions as (laughs) parts of that history. Uh, But you have more than that. You have the stifling of scientific advancement. Um, You have the the coercion of empire, the mingling of politics with spirituality uh, to sort of force a state religion onto people and there were certain questions that you could not ask and there were certain comments that you couldn't make publicly without ending up in jail right and so all of this led up to a sort of a moment of 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 explosion where we see in in the protestant reformation we see this it it sort of culminates in this apex And you finally have this explosion where it's like, we're going back to the Bible, right? And so the source of truth, the absolute source of truth moves away from the church and the priest and and begins to be seen exclusively as the text of scripture itself. Um, But, you know, there were still problems because the Protestants manifested the same injustices as the Catholics did. Uh, they controlled certain states, and you know, state church religion was still a thing, and injustice and tyranny was still a thing, and and so this kind of paved the way. And I know I'm being a little bit, uh, I'm mapping things out, and when you map history out, you lose a lot of nuance and a lot of complexity. So please don't think that uh, this mapping out is intended to capture every complex nuance of history. If you really want to understand this stuff in depth, you got to read about it. Um, but, you know, essentially, this tyranny and this religious coercion uh, kind of is is one of the one of the underlying um, substrates that kind of leads to this explosion of anti-religion that emerges, right? so you've you've got the Enlightenment and you've got the French Revolution, which, you know, the French Revolution has shaped the modern mind probably more than any other historical event in recent, you know, recent history. So definitely, you know, at least watch a documentary on the French Revolution if you want to understand the modern mind, right? At, at least do that. <laughs> um, So... You know, French Revolution happens, and there's this sort of like get rid of religion, get rid of these, you know, ridiculous ideas. Enlightenment, you know, get rid of these, uh, you know, um, pre uh, prehistoric or you know just um, just ignorant ideas of magic and spirits and you know ghouls and and even angels and God. And it's like you know you've got the scientific revolution now that is like everything can be answered by science and so the absolute source of truth moves away from the church and the bible and now it becomes science science is the absolute source of truth if you want answers to your questions science will get them for you and you can't trust the church and you can't rely on the church because the church is oppressive and 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 it's a tyrant and this book that it bases its ideology on is outdated and it's ancient and it's unscientific and so science now becomes the new uh source of absolute truth and and then within this new source of absolute truth there is this enthusiasm right there's this there's this mood that humanity is headed somewhere really good the scientific revolution technological advancement this is going to allow us to transcend our limitations and who knows what the future holds It's going to be grand it's going to be beautiful we are headed toward utopia and so there's sort of this enthusiasm that through the scientific revolution right now that we finally occupy a space in time where we can ask whatever questions we want to ask and we can explore things empirically and you know depend on reason instead of outmoded religious constructs you know we can reason and and wrestle with these big questions of the universe and how things work we can begin to now as a human species move ourselves toward our own salvation right we 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 are moving ourselves toward this toward this utopian experience um and you know science certainly delivered incredible amounts of technological advancements and continues to this day to, to deliver incredible revolutionary, um, uh, you know, advancements that have really changed the way people live and, and the way people interact with reality. I mean, so many of you listening to this right now, if you lived in the 1500s, you would have died 10 times by today, you know, but, you know, scientific advancements, like a simple thing, like an antibiotic, you know, like things that would have could have potentially killed you (laughs) you know in the 1500s you don't even think about you know like you get a uti and you just go get a an antibiotic and it's like you know it, it doesn't fuss you too much doesn't it doesn't stress you out at all whereas back then that could possibly be a death sentence you know um and so there's this there's all these amazing things happening with science and there's this enthusiasm and and science now occupies this space of absolute truth but then world war one happens and as we observe world war one we realize that science has not only given us the capacity to advance in beautiful ways it's also given us the capacity to advance in very cruel ways the scientific revolution has brought with it the capacity to design weapons that can kill people and mass uh very quickly and and very violently but that's not really the 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 you know the painful bit the painful bit is that not too not not too far along uh, after world war one you get world war two and on the tail end of world war two we're introduced to the atomic age right the nuclear age and and all of a sudden for the first time in human history there's like hey we can actually annihilate our entire species like we can self-inflict our own annihilation and science made that possible right science made the atomic bomb possible science made um, all of these fully automatic weapons and this incredible warfare science made it possible um and so Not only do we have this self-annihilation that we are now capable of because of science, but then, you know, Spanish flu uh, had come along as well. There was a lot of things that were taking place during this time. Spanish flu had come along. Um, We didn't do too well with that. Science didn't help us too much with that, although it did give us an atomic bomb, so hooray. Um, And you had the depression as well. People were just completely disillusioned, right? There was a sense in which science failed us it failed us terribly we thought it was going to give us utopia and instead we had the bloodiest wars in like the history of ever right and so there is now this new mood that begins to occupy the cultural consciousness it's a mood of disenchantment um it's a mood of disillusionment it's like we thought we were headed towards utopia and look at what we got instead And so this then begins to open the door to a whole new way of interacting with reality. It's not the pre-modern way where we put all our faith in the absolute truth found in the church or in the Bible. And it's not the modern way where we put our trust in the absolute truth found within the scientific method. Uh, But now what we find is that the whole concept of absolute truth itself begins to be questioned. Right. And and this started before some of the things I've mentioned, you know, we can go back to Nietzsche and see these basic building blocks of questioning, um, you know, the reliability of reason and, you know, absolute truth constructs like absolute truth. Uh, we can already see it in Nietzsche, but they become really strong, really powerful. Right. There's this there's this new mood that's taken over. And the enthusiasm that the scientific revolution brought is replaced by this cynicism right there's this strong cynicism now that actually humanity we're not headed anywhere good there's this dystopian as opposed to utopian vision of the future right there's this post-apocalyptic visage of where we as a species are headed and and this paves the way to things like nihilism Um, And, and, and indifference generally, when it comes to the way people are relating to reality. And so now you have entire generations that are progressively being raised with this concept, this construct undergirding their worldview, that there is no absolute truth that there is no meta-narrative that can make sense of the human experience, that it's just chaos, um, that it's fragmented, disposable, and, and, and virtually empty and random. And so I think it was Foucault, uh, who's a, a postmodern philosopher, who defined postmodernity as the random swirl of empty signals, right? Um, and so this is essentially what takes over, is this idea that, look... Absolute truth, we thought it was in the church, and the church failed us. We thought it was in science, and then science failed us. So maybe the problem is not so much science itself or religion itself. Maybe the problem is deeper than that. Maybe the problem is that we keep assuming that there is such a thing as absolute truth. And maybe there is no absolute truth. Maybe there is no meta narrative. Maybe there is no rhyme and no reason to existence whatsoever. It's just random, chaotic and there's no there's no truth to be derived from that and so in sort of it's more you know pop cultural manifestations you begin to see people emerge with ideas like hey your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and this is in itself a protest to religious coercion right it's a protest to religious tyranny it's like you know stop coercing me with your moral absolutes because there are no moral absolutes it's it's relative and, um, you know, I'm going to do my thing, you do your thing and just, you know, leave me alone. <laughs> um, sort of a pale way of looking at it. But it's, it's certainly one that you will encounter in different degrees within, within the culture. And so these ideas then that begin to take over the cultural consciousness are, are not merely, and, and this is something that I really hope we can understand, this isn't merely selfish sinful fallen human beings looking for excuses to do whatever they want right and i've heard christians say that and it irks me so much because it it reduces the complexity of post-modernity and the very difficult and brilliant questions it asks about the assumptions that we make to 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 a judgment call on people's motives and the truth is religion failed and the truth is that in science failed to to deliver on his promises and you can only fail to deliver on your promises so much before incredulity takes over and this is essentially what happened with postmodernity there is now this incredulity toward the meta narratives toward absolute truth and and people then begin to navigate reality with this randomness and this notion that there is no such thing as absolute truth um, now This then paves the way, because I want to head back to this heading that I gave you guys earlier, the the one I I referred to as the absurdity of life, because this then paves the way to a whole new struggle, an existential struggle for people. And this existential struggle was probably, in my opinion anyways, codified the best by the French philosopher Albert Camus. And he referred to this as the absurdity of life. He wasn't the only one, but I like the way that he framed it. And, and Camus is basically, if I can simplify to the extreme, Camus is basically suggesting that life is absurd, right? Life is absurd. But what makes life absurd is that we inhabit a reality, a universe that mocks us and mocks our existence as fleeting as futile as pointless right but within us there is a deep raging desire for meaning and purpose and significance and so you have these two these two contradictory ideas you have the reality of a universe that mocks your existence And then you have the reality of a drive within you that wants there to be meaning in your existence. And when you let that drive out, the universe just laughs at you because there is no meaning to your existence. But you can't ignore the craving for that meaning. And that tension, right? That tension between meaninglessness and the pursuit of meaning is essentially what Camus is referring to when he talks about the absurdity. Of life life is absurd because it's meaningless but we crave for it to be meaningful right and so essentially the absurdity of life that a non-faith culture is contending with is is this idea of you know nothing matters we're headed nowhere um my life is an accident it's it's just here it's it doesn't mean anything and nothing means anything but i don't want to live that way because that's an unlivable and unpleasant undesirable way to live and so i'm going to then try and find a way for this desire for meaning and purpose to have a fulfillment even though it's all an illusion basically and and probably um you know Camus wrote this book called the myth of sisyphus um where he kind of explores this concept through the ancient greek myth of sisyphus and for those of you who aren't familiar uh, sisyphus is a character in ancient greece who was punished by the gods and um he was punished by the gods to an eternal task of rolling a large boulder up a hill and then when it gets to the top of the hill it rolls back to the bottom and he has to do it over right and so sisyphus isn't merely condemned to an eternal task of running this boulder up the hill or rolling, but rather to an eternal, meaningless task. And so basically what this means is that all of his effort, all of his labor, and all of his sweat and blood and agony ultimately amounts to nothing. When he gets the boulder to the top of the hill, it just rolls back to the bottom, and he has to do it again, over and over and over, forever and ever and ever. (laughs) And so Camus takes this myth and he says... This myth captures the heart of the non-faith culture with stunning clarity. And, and, and life in this portrait, right, or experiencing life in this portrait is this pointless and senseless struggle where we fight to our last breath to validate our existence only to die and be forgotten. You're going to suffer. You're going to be a victim. You're going to weep. Um, you're going to experience agony. You're going to do your best. You're going to pursue your dreams. You're going to build your empire. And then at the end of it, when you get to the top of the hill, life is going to mock you with its seeming emptiness and vanity. And basically, you're going (laughs) to conclude that the infinite blackness staring at you is nothing, that you are nothing, that all is nothing, and that your best and brightest is absolutely nothing. Now, you guys might be thinking, who in the world would believe this? Like, this is shockingly depressing. (laughs) Um, But you'd be surprised that what might seem shockingly depressing to you actually turns out to be liberating in a secular worldview. So I'm going to get to that in a moment. But basically... Sisyphus so and his eternal meaninglessness emerges as this archetype of the thought that permeates our culture's substrate. Right from from the scientist that declares that our universe is is you know going to implode, the heat death of the universe, and in, in time all memory of us will be completely erased. Um, to the accountant who drags his feet through life like a mindless zombie just going to work paying the bills coming back home over and over and over again um most people today most people today in the broad culture live as holocaust survivor victor frankl um, himself put it in in his book man's search for meaning that people today have and i quote the means to live But no meaning to live for. End quote. And so the the culture, the one that surrounds our churches, right, with 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 all of its amusements and pleasures, it can't escape its own reality. It's drowning in this absurdity. Right. It's drowning in this absurdity. And so when you're confronted with this absurdity, you have to do something, right? Like again, you have to place yourself within the mind of a person who has a no faith, a no faith experience in life what is it like to inhabit a worldview of absurdity right what what do you push for what is your objective to what do you aspire what helps you to go on living what is there that you can find that is meaningful enough to justify the futility of it all so sisyphus right sisyphus he he has to find some way to avoid insanity if he's to live with some measure of happiness Um, what is he supposed to do if he's condemned to this eternal vanity, right? And we have to inhabit that. We have to inhabit that space. We have to inhabit that mind. We have to inhabit that painful, painful, painful experience. But then, and I'm going to talk about this more in the next episode, um, you will realize that this experience of absurdity within secular thought isn't actually a depressing and dark and dreary thing that people are just itching to escape from but actually it becomes itself a sort of foundation for freedom and autonomy and happiness and i'm going to explore that some more because you might be thinking how in the world does that work Uh, i'll explore some more in the next episode but for now i just want to summarize real quick and then i want to wrap up the first point in my summary is this. If you if you really want to reach secular culture, then please stop looking for a formula to reach them. Stop running to what program can I go to next, right? what 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 can our church do to start reaching people like that's good and we do need to have that conversation and we do need to do things we we need to be out there reaching people but at the same time we need to take a little bit of time to to actually inhabit and appreciate and and inhale what it means to be a secular person in the world today and what are the ideological substructures that undergird their experience with reality and what we've explored today is this concept of the the um the absurdity of life this tension between meaningless meaninglessness and meaning and here's the thing the vast majority of secular people that you will meet in the world um they're not necessarily aware of this absurdity in in any sort of concrete sense right it's not like it's not like you're gonna you know go to your local cafe and sit down with your barrister and say so talk to me about the absurdity of life they'll probably look at you like what's wrong with you you know Um, most people in the general population are not philosophers Um, they are not codifying these things they're not reading Albert Camus and Friedrich Nietzsche right Um, most people in the general population are just everyday folk trying to make it but these ideas form a Unspoken or subconscious substrate that then spills over into a worldview that is essentially absurd. It's a worldview that says, look, there is no meaning, there is no direction, um, it's it's all meaningless. But yet, within your essence, within your being, ontologically as a creature, as a sentient being, you crave significance and meaning. And so then the question is, how does a secular person navigate that tension? And that's what we're going to explore in the next episode, because understanding how the secular mind navigates that tension is the key to really beginning to unravel a missiology or or, um, a, a missional approach to meaningfully interact with them so we'll explore that some more next time but i hope this made sense for today um if you want to read it in its in its full context i did write an article over to compass magazine titled uh, reimagining adventism uh part one adventism and absurdity it's linked below uh you can actually even skip to next week's episode if you read that article because um the whole thing is there but um Listen to the episode next week, anyways, because you know I expand on it a little bit more than what is written down in the article itself. Now, before I close today, I wanted to stop and thank um, everyone. This year, 2020, um, I published the book, uh, "The Death and Rebirth of the Investigative Judgment" as an ebook on my website, and um, I just really want to thank everyone who who bought a copy of that book. It was a, an e-book uh, because the sales for that book made it possible for me to finally pay a graphic designer to put together the Bible study set that I've designed for studying the Bible with secular people. And um, he's done an absolutely amazing job. I have talked about this in previous episodes. We We kept the design simple, elegant, minimalistic because we don't want this thing to cost an arm and a leg. Um, especially being a pastor. I can really relate to pastors. We don't make a lot of money. And I the last thing I wanted to do was create a Bible study set that was going to cost you $40. So we kept it, you know, we kept it really, really um, clean and elegant and, and pleasant to look at, but simple. And uh, something that you can use to navigate um, spiritual conversations with secular friends. And so it explores the 28 fundamental beliefs. And um, it does so in a way that really sets a good foundation for mutual learning and growing and journeying together with secular contacts now um once again that was only made possible because of those of you who purchased the ebook the death and rebirth of the investigative judgment and i really really want to thank you guys for taking the risk of parting ways with uh, what was it 14 bucks um parting ways with it and uh and um and trusting that what you would the product you would end up with would have some semblance of meaning (laughs) Uh, so thank you guys thank you for trusting trusting me that way um and i do want to say this as well the death and rebirth of the investigative judgment is now available as a print book so you can actually get it on amazon in print it's not just an ebook anymore You can go on Amazon, get the print version. Um, If you want, you can just search for it on Amazon or you can go on thestorychurchproject.com slash store and uh, you can click the link to get the print copy on Amazon there. Um, And lastly, a huge thank you to the patrons who continue to support the Story Church Project. Um, I know when COVID hit this year, I thought, you know, with people struggling financially, I, I might see a drop in that, but I actually haven't. And I just really want to thank you guys for that. It's super, super, super meaningful. And uh, I really appreciate it. You have no idea. I appreciate it a lot because it helps me to keep this thing going. Um, so I really appreciate you guys and uh, just for your your uh, affirmation and your belief in what's happening at the Storage Church Project. And uh, I hope to continue to provide excellent content on the podcast and uh, different resources that I'll be um, pumping out in the next uh, next next few months until the end of 2020 and then um we'll look at uh, how much fun we'll have in 2021 all right anyways i think that's it those were my thanks and um yeah so with that said i'm gonna let you guys go make sure to tune in next week for our next episode on understanding the secular mind and until then may god continue to use you to redesign adventism for mission take care and god bless